All right, good afternoon. It's good to see you. Um, the video that, that was going to be shown was just a brief history of the Bible, but it's okay because I'm going to be going into that a little bit in depth. But I've got a little trivia for you first. Let's make sure this is all working. Yep. What was the first major book printed in the West using movable type? Yes, but then it gets more complicated. Who was the one who printed this first book? Yes, Gutenberg. In what year? Really testing your trivia knowledge. <laughs> 1454. 1454. Next question. What book is the most translated book in the world? The Bible. But how many languages? How many languages do you think? It's a good guess. So 349 languages with 2,426 uh, 2, languages have at least one portion. So 349 complete translations of the Bible and 2,000 plus of portions of the Bible. What is the world's best-selling book? The Bible. Um, and more, more than, they, they don't know exactly because a lot of Bibles are actually given away for free and not sold, but they estimate about uh, more than 100 million copies sold or, um, every year. It's a lot. Um, where is the largest Bible publishing house in the world? What was that? Don't be shy. <laughs> U.S. is a good guess. The U.S. used to be. There's actually a publishing house named uh, Zondervan in Michigan, which is where I was before I came to this lovely place. Um, and yeah, they've got this ginormous publishing house. But now it's no longer the U.S. It's China. China. Um, the, the printing company is called Amity Printing Company. It's ironic, right? But actually, China produces... Um, well, they just printed their 125 millionth copy in November 2014, and uh, they actually just opened in 1987. So 125 million copies since 1987. And it's actually kind of funny. They say people think that you know people can't have Bibles in China, so the missionaries going with Bibles that actually ironically have been printed in China that they bought elsewhere, because two-thirds of their uh, Bibles are actually exported out and then... I guess some make it back in. Um, but yeah, the Bible. The Bible is an amazing book. I mean, can you just think about the sheer number of Bibles that are being printed, that every generation um, in every culture is sold and um, has been translated? Here's a few quick facts about the Bible, continuing kind of the trivia um, category here. I'm just going to give you some, some facts as we go into the details of it. But the word Bible comes from the Greek ta biblia, which actually just literally means the books, the books. So the word Bible means the books. How many books? 66 books. So there are 66 books in the Bible, and they are divided, those 66 books, into two categories. Sorry, my hair is getting in there. Uh, Old Testament and New Testament. Now, who knows what the word testament means? Anybody? The word testament uh, means covenant. And so in the Old Testament or the Old Covenant section, there are how many books? Anyone know? Yep, 39 books in the Old Testament written in Hebrew uh, between 1400 to 400 BC. Now the New Testament books, how many are in that category? Anyone know? 
27. And anyone know what languages they were written in? They are written in uh, Koine Greek, as well as a little bit in Aramaic. Um, and those are written between 50 to 95 AD. So everyone clear so far? The Bible was written over a period from 1400 BC all the way to 95 AD. So there are actually over 40 authors who wrote these 66 books. And these authors were from all walks of life. Some were kings, some were farmers, some were shepherds, some were priests, some were fishermen, some were doctors. So the question becomes, in this vast um, you know, array of different authors, as well as the, the immense time that has passed, right? 1400 BC to almost 100 AD. That's a long time. How is it possible that all these books actually are consistent and cohesive? And the answer that I would like to propose to you today is that it is possible because these 66 books um, and these 40 authors were inspired by God. This is a verse uh, found in 2 Timothy uh, chapter 3, verses 14 to 17. This is um, a man named Paul. He's writing to Timothy. And he says, You must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God or the woman of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. In the original Greek there, um, it, it literally says that, that scripture is God-breathed. God-breathed. In other words, that even though there were 40 authors over a long, you know, thousands of years uh, time span, that all of them had one source, God himself, that he inspired these individuals. Now, what does it mean that God inspired these individuals? Some people think that, you know, did was it automatic writing? You know how, have you ever seen those uh, videos of people who like their eyes roll back, you know, and all of a sudden they just start scribbling and they have no idea what they're writing. And then, you know, all of a sudden they come back to and they've written this prophecy or they've written, um, you know, something that they don't even know because it's in a whole different language. Well, it wasn't, it wasn't like that. Um, when God inspired these authors, it wasn't automatic writing, nor was it dictation. God did not say, all right, this is what I want you to write. Here's word by word. No, God inspired the thoughts. God inspired these individuals with the vision or the plan or sometimes they were writing historical things that they observed. For example, uh, when it came to Moses, Moses actually wrote the first five books of the Bible. Um, so if you look in the beginning of your Bible, there'll be Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And those five books were all written by Moses. Well, Genesis tells a story of creation and the flood and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, which was all before Moses' time. So Genesis was written by Moses from revelation from God, where God had to reveal to Moses the conversations and the events that occurred before he was obviously born. However, when it comes to Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, Moses actually was living through those things. He was actually the key player in the Israelites' exodus out of Egypt into Canaan. And so he could report um, what happened 
describe the conversations, um, describe in detail the numbers of, of the camp, et cetera, et cetera, who they fought, the results. And so you've got sometimes the writers uh, recording reality as they saw them, reality as God wanted them to write it down. For example, in the book of Exodus, God gives Moses the Ten Commandments, and he actually wrote that and gave it to Moses and gave Moses a plan that he wanted Moses to write down. So there are times where God says, thus says the Lord, write this down, right? And there are times when God reveals ideas or visions or thoughts, and the writers would describe them the best they could. Um, And so, for example, in the book of Revelation, John saw a vision of God and his throne. And he's trying his best to describe it with words that he knows. So he says, you know, the, the, his throne, the bottom was like sapphire and, you know, there was a rainbow over his head and his, his eyes were like flames of fire. And I have no idea what, what God's eyes actually look like, but he's doing the best he can, right? Um, with language that he, you know, the vocabulary that he has. And so, uh, the Bible writers communicated through writing down Uh, what God communicated to them. Now, some have suggested that the Bible was written by an elite group that wanted to manipulate people so they got together and kind of invented these things. But if that's the case, when you look at the consequence, um, it's highly unlikely that um, that's the case because the writings of the Bible and the people who followed these writings were persecuted relentlessly. And so it didn't actually bring them power. It didn't actually bring them popularity. And so um, that criticism that it's all made up in order to gain power for themselves um, didn't actually pan out that way in history. So if you look at that theory, um, it can be just proven. Now, the books from Genesis to Revelation have a central overarching theme. So again, you've got 40 authors, you've got 66 books, but it's amazing the cohesiveness and the central message that is prevalent in each of those books. And that message is simply this, God wants to be with us. And so in Genesis, you've got a story of a God that is trying to reach out to people who have disobeyed him. All the way to Revelation, you've got a story of a God who's trying to once again be with his people um, who are in a world that is full of pain and chaos. And so that is the theme that you have to keep in mind as you study the Bible. Now, how did the Bible come to us? That's the question we're examining today. Um, The Old Testament books were handwritten, painstakingly copied, on parchment. Now, here's a picture. By the way, um, the first five books of the Bible that were written by Moses, they are often called the Torah or Pentateuch. Um, so if you ever hear anybody say Torah or Pentateuch, that's what they're talking about. And so they would often use sheepskin. Sometimes they would also use um, you know, cows or other animals, but mainly they would use sheepskin. And you can see here that they've kind of sewn the parchment together. Now, This is actually, believe it or not, all hand copied. It's a lot of words. It's a lot of pages. Um, Can you imagine the effort that went in? And these scribes, the Jewish scribes, were so careful to make sure that what they copied was exactly the same as the original. 
that if they made even the slightest little mistake, they would destroy the entire panel. And they would either burn it or bury it because they didn't want wrong copies out there. And so can you imagine the amount of work? Um, and usually one sheep um, was about two to three meters long. In order to have the entire Pentateuch or the Torah, it needed 50 meters. And so sometimes you would have a whole flock. <laughs> um, and so it, was, it wasn't an easy process, and it wasn't a cheap process. And so they were very careful to make sure that they were very exact. Let me show you what Hebrew looks like. I remember when I was learning Hebrew, I, was, I thought I was going to go insane. Because I don't know if you can see this, but like there's very little difference between that and that, except for this little bit. Um, and this is magnified, like it's teeny tiny. And so if they accidentally put a little extra, you know, bit here or versus that versus that, um, they would destroy the whole thing and start over. Um, and yeah, Hebrew is, it was very difficult for me to learn. And so the question, you know, a lot of skeptics said, you know what, there's no way that, you know, the oldest, um, book in the Old Testament is 1400 BC, right? They said to themselves, there's no way that for all those years, all those people copying all those words didn't make mistakes. And so skeptics said, what we have here is probably modified. There's probably missing pieces. There's probably wrong pieces. We're not even sure if, you know, what we have was really written back then. And so skeptics, um, yeah, really questioned the Bible for a long time. In fact, until 1946, which is not that long ago. And so for hundreds of years, people really doubted, do we really have the original? Well, in 1946, there were some shepherd boys playing by the Dead Sea um, uh, area. And along this way, there were lots of caverns, and they were throwing rocks, as boys will do. And when they threw the rock into one of the caves, they heard something crack. They heard like pottery break. And so they went in and they discovered to their surprise these large pots. And of course they alerted the authorities and um, for the next, from 1947 till 1956, they found 11 caves with hundreds of these pots that contained more than 870 scrolls. And these scrolls dated back um, to the time as far back as 200 BC. And this was an amazing find, not just for the Bible, not just for, for Christianity and Judaism, but it was a great find for archaeology and, and scholarship because thanks to a lot of the writings um, uh, that were found, they were able to learn a lot about the history of that area and literature, et cetera, et cetera. And so the Dead Sea Scrolls, as they are known today, um, there's, there weren't just copies of the Old Testament, there were other writings as well, but it, but it contained in uh, those 800-some scrolls were 19 copies of the book of Isaiah, 25 copies of the book of Deuteronomy, 30 copies of the book of Psalms, and in fact, fragments of every book of the Old Testament, except for the book of Esther, were found here. And they believe that this was a library of um, one of the Jewish 
sects that lived during that time. And so what scholars do is they say, okay, this, these are old, right? These are from the 200 BC, and of course they had gotten them from their predecessors. And so they wondered, I wonder how much of the Dead Sea Scrolls, compared to what we have today, how much is identical? And they were very skeptical. But to their amazement, for example, the book of Isaiah, they compared it, and they found that the Dead Sea Scrolls and our current Isaiah is pretty much word for word. There was like a few spelling differences, like I instead of E type of a thing, but the words, word for word. That's how faithful the Jewish scribes had been to make sure that the original um, words, the original messages were copied and handed down from generation to generation. And so we can be confident that what we have in the Bible today is the original that was, that was given out with very minor differences. But what about the New Testament? Okay, so we, we've got the Dead Sea Scrolls that give us a nice kind of confirmation that the Old Testament can be trusted, that it is the reliable, um, you know, transmission of the original. But what about the New Testament? New, the New Testament books were, by then, parchment was old. Now they had a new thing called papyrus, right? So... This is papyrus, and papyrus is basically um, reeds that would grow by the rivers that they would flatten down, and um, you know, very similar to the kind of paper we have today is basically derived from papyrus. And this was um, easier to make and um, not as expensive as all the sheep, and they were able to write and copy a bit more by this time. And the New Testament books were all written between 50 to 95 A.D., on these thin paper-like uh, papyrus. And the significance of the dates, 50 to 95 AD, is that they are not long after the events that were recorded. In other words, Jesus lived um, and died and resurrected in, in 34 AD. And so if you think about it, in the, in the 30s AD, so if you think about it, since the first book in the New Testament was written in 50 AD, that's only 20 years after the events. Many other people were still alive. In fact, all the way up until the last book, which is written by John um, in 95 AD, John was actually one of the disciples of Jesus. So that whole generation was still alive. And so the question becomes, well, if you're writing about something that happened in the lifetime of your readers, if you make it up, right, then you are basically risking ridicule. Because everyone is alive to be able to say, no, that's not what happened. I was there and that didn't happen. And so the fact that there's so little time difference between the actual events and when the events were recorded and shared um, is a big indicator to us today that um, they were true events. Furthermore, um, you would think that if these accounts were false, that even if they wrote them and shared them, the movement just would die off because it'd be very clear that they weren't true. But instead of dying off, and even though they try to kill off the Christians, Christianity just blossomed and multiplied into thousands. And, and uh, we shared about that last time, about how quickly Christianity grew. Um, when you compare the writings of the New Testament with other ancient texts, it's amazing how much in your history books 
you'll see things written as fact. For example, this is a chart that compares ancient writers with the date that it was written um, with the earliest copies. In other words, because uh, they would write things on papyrus or scrolls, they wouldn't last. And so even though, let's say, for example, Homer wrote the Iliad in 800 BC, the earliest copies that, that you know, we're, we're able to identify are from the 400 BCs. So there's a time gap of 400 years. Now, number of copies means that, you know, th they would make copies of this books and, and it would spread. And so it shows 643 copies of Homer's Iliad that are out there with some variances from the different copies. Um, Herodotus' history, you see there's 900, um, uh, sorry, there's 1,350 years of a time gap between when it was written and the earliest copies. And there's only eight of them that we have discovered. And yet, what we have read about in Herodotus' history, we accept as fact. For example, the Trojan War. If you all heard of the Trojan War, you all learn about it in school, right? And you all learn about, um, you know, the intrigue and, and, the, and the two nations at war, and you learn about Helen and et cetera, et cetera. Well, the writings of the New Testament, um, if you look down here, were written in 5200 AD, and the earliest copies are actually right around that time. The time gap is, you know, at most 200 some years. And look at how many copies exist. And this is actually not accurate anymore. There's more that have been discovered since this chart was made. It says 5,366. That is a lot more. This is actually the second most um, number of copies in ancient texts that we have. So after 5,000 some is 643. And yet... Everybody questions the historicity and the, and the reliability of New Testament manuscripts, but no one questions any of this, even though there's seven copies with 1,300 years between Plato's writings. We all read Plato's writings, and we don't question that Plato existed. We don't question Plato's writings about Socrates. We don't question that Socrates died through drinking you know, the poison. You know, we all kind of accept that as fact. Meanwhile, how little we have to go on that and how much we have to go on the New Testament manuscripts being true. And so I just wanted to show that chart um, and uh, show you how in the very time that it was written, copies started immediately going out, and we have a lot of those copies today. This is what, um, also in addition to the copies that we have today, the, the nice thing about the New Testament is that the accounts that were written were written by first-hand eyewitnesses. So, for example, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16 to 21. Peter was one of the disciples of Jesus. Jesus had 12 disciples that he was especially close to, who lived with him, walked with him, ate with him, did, did everything with Jesus. And this is what Peter wrote. Here, for we do not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves have heard this utterance from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So we have the prophetic word made more sure, to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, 
but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So notice how Peter says, I heard the voice that when Jesus got baptized, the voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son, right? He's like, I was there on the mountain when Jesus was there and his face was shining. Moses came down, Elijah came down. They had a little conversation. Peter actually offered to like build a tent for them. And of course he doesn't write that. He's like, I made a mistake. He just says, I was there, right? I was there. He's able to share his firsthand eyewitness account. Here's another firsthand eyewitness account. John was another one of those disciples. Peter, uh, James, and John were three disciples out of the 12 that Jesus was especially close to. And this is what John says. He says, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested. And we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. Notice how he repeats over and over again. These things we saw, these things we heard, right? He's sharing his first-hand witness. And he says, look, I'm not just writing this to tell you what happened. He says, these things I write about the life the eternal life that you can have, the word of life, and the joy that you can have as well. And so these first-hand eyewitness accounts are what the New Testament writing is about. Now you may wonder, okay, John was a disciple. All right, Peter was a disciple. Well, what about Mark? Mark wasn't one of the 12 disciples. Or Luke, Luke was a doctor. He wasn't one of the 12 disciples. And you might have heard about the Gospel of Thomas or the Gospel of Judas. What about those? How come those are not in our current Bibles today? Well, what happened was um, there were different books that were written. Um, And so what happened was in the early 1st century and 2nd century, um, there was a question, okay, which books are accepted and which books are not? And what they did was they created what's called canon. I don't know if you've ever heard this, um, the, the Bible canon. Now, canon just simply means a measuring rod, a measuring rod. And so they actually had criteria for determining, excuse me, for determining whether or not a gospel book was reliable. And these are some of the criteria that they had. It had to be written by an apostle. Apostle was one of the 12 um, disciples of Jesus or those in immediate contact with the apostles. For example, Luke, um, even though he was not one of the apostles, he spent a lot of time traveling with Peter and Paul. And so he was able to hear from them directly the stories that he was then able to write down in the book of Luke. The other criterion was that it had to be consistent with the rest of the Bible. If someone wrote uh, something and and they, people said, okay, well, let's see if you're inspired, and they compared what they wrote with um, the rest of the Bible that was accepted, and they were claiming things that were directly in contradiction, then it was very unlikely they would accept your writing as inspired by God. Also, um, it had to be something that was widely and continuously used. In other words, Roy shared um, a few weeks back about how you know the Christian church was as a first a tiny a tiny group of people in Jerusalem, but quickly they started sharing the the word about Jesus elsewhere. So there was a church in Corinth that popped up, a church in Thessalonica that popped up, a church in um, 
uh, Sardis that popped up. So in all these different cities, there were different Christian churches, and each of them had different fragments of copies of uh, the writings of the apostles, the writings of Paul, the writings of Peter, etc. And they had been in circulation for, for many years. And so by the time the question came up, well, what about this book? Well, most of the churches had never heard of that book. And so it was unlikely that it was something that was genuine because it only was local, if that makes sense. Um, if, if there was um, a book that was genuinely written during um, the first century, then it would have already been circulated throughout the different churches because that was the custom of that day. So if you read the book of Revelation, it actually begins by John writing to the seven churches in Asia. And he says, I want this to be read in all the seven churches. And so they would, the messenger would go and read the whole book of Revelation to, you know, the church of Ephesus. And then they would go to, you know, the church of Philadelphia, read it all. Go to, the, and then finally church of Laodicea, read it all. And so if it was a genuine um, uh, writing from, let's say, Peter or Paul, it would have been circulated throughout the churches. But if it was a book that they hadn't heard of, then that probably meant that it wasn't genuine. Now, the gospel of Judas, for example, was rejected because it was written around 130 to 170 A.D., long after Judas' death. And so they thought, well, this couldn't be from Judas. It was written after he died. Or the Gospel of Thomas was written about 140 AD, which is also after Thomas' death. And so that's only what, that's when they appeared, um, which is very strange considering all the churches would have heard about it before then. And so they used these criteria to determine what's actually part of the canon. And by um, 367 AD, um, the bishop of Alexandria named Athanasius affirmed what was already the practice of the time, which was the 27 books that we now have in the New Testament today. And so pretty much from early on, um, it was accepted that those were genuine um, books were written by the apostles or their close associates. Now, copies of these manuscripts were widely circulated, and as I shared before, we have many of the copies today. Here is um, papyrus number 52. This is the oldest um, confirmed copy of the New Testament. Um, it was discovered in Egypt. It's currently in the museum in England, and um, they would give manuscripts names. And so how they named these manuscripts is that um, codex literally just meant a bundle of papyrus. And so in the, when they would go somewhere and they would find a bundle of papyrus, they would name it Codex, if they found it in Alexandria, Codex Alexandria. And then they would say papyrus number 52 or whatever number. And so if you ever read your Bibles and at the very bottom it'll say Codex something, then you, now you know what it means. Oh, it's saying that this translation was found from um, the papyrus found in that area. Oh, by the way, this picture is Codex Vatican, um, which is actually the oldest, pretty much complete manuscript of the entire Bible, and still all hand-copied, by the way, mind you. Um, and they believe that it's from the 4th century, so 300-something A.D., only a 100 um, years or so after the last book of the Bible was written, they had complete copies um, that they have found. There is um, 
every year new manuscripts that are discovered. For example, in 2012, Dr. Daniel Wallace, founder of the Center for the Study of New Testament Manuscripts, discovered a manuscript, like a tiny fragment of the Gospel of Mark that dates back to the first century AD. So that's um, pretty much right as it was first written. Um, so they're always finding these new manuscripts. Sadly, the abundance of the copies of the Bible in various languages, um, because when they find these manuscripts, they're not always in Greek. They, they sometimes are in the local languages. Um, they used to be proliferate. They used to be everywhere. Thousands of copies of the Bible had been shared by the, by the missionary Christians who had this love for God and this passion to share. But sadly... All those different languages and all those different copies dramatically decreased because in 382 AD, Pope Damascus I commissioned a man named Jerome to translate the New Testament from its original Greek into Latin, and in fact, the entire Bible into Latin. And this was um, known as the Latin Vulgate. And the Pope further um, said this is the only copy of the Bible that can now exist. So you can no longer have the Bible in any language except Latin. And only the priests um, could read Latin because they were the, educated in Latin. But if you're a local you know, guy in, in um, Saxony or if you're a local woman in um, you know, what became later France, you, you would be speaking different dialects and languages and you would have no idea what the priest was saying when the priest would quote uh, the Bible in Latin. Um, so while the Bible began with all these manuscripts and all these copies and all these languages, it quickly became very, very rare. And for about a thousand years that we now call the Dark Ages or the Middle Ages, um, the lack of the Bible knowledge led to unimaginable corruption and ignorance and superstition. And Roy is going to talk about that next week. And I'm just going to give you a little teaser of the weeks to come, because uh, thankfully... Thanks to the Reformation, the Bible started getting translated back into the, uh, into the original language as well as to local languages. So, for example, in 1382, John Wycliffe translated that Bible back into English. Um, and this is handwritten like still, right? All hand copied. Um, 1382. Now, the Pope was not very happy about that. Um, in fact... They were. They didn't manage to actually kill him, so they were very upset. So, 44 years after his death, they dug his bones back up. Pope Martin V commanded that in 1428 that his corpse be exhumed, burned, and his ashes cast into the river. Um, and many others who dared to translate the Bible into the local language were, um, in the same way, persecuted and, and killed. Um, but thanks to their faithfulness, the Bible survived. Um, and became became shared. And by the way, the Bible, up until this point, were all just long codex papyrus of words. It wasn't until uh, 1228 AD that the Bible was divided into chapters. Um, 1448 AD was when the New Testament became divided into verses. And then finally, the first Bible with chapters and verses was the Geneva Bible of 1560. So until 1560, it was just all words, and you would, they would memorize them, actually. Um, so now we can be like, turn to Timothy chapter 2, 
you know, verse whatever, but back then they would just kind of recite the whole book <laughs> of Isaiah or whatever book it was. Um, but we're very grateful that they have divided. Um, but just letting you know, that's not the original. In the original, they weren't divided into chapters and verses. So sometimes you might read... Um, and you might be like, well, that's a very abrupt place to end the chapter. Well, that's because they did their best. They did their best, but it's not always going to be um, smooth. Just to give you a few ideas about translations, you might wonder, okay, well, the Bible I have now, sometimes you read it, and I look at my version, and it's a little different. Why is that? That's because after Wycliffe, there were many different translations of the English Bible. In fact, here's, here's a nice little chart. Um, Here's down here, the original manuscripts, 1500 BC to 8100, early copies, ancient versions, Latin and Vulgate. And then after this long time period, you've got um, finally 1380, John Wycliffe, and then Tyndale, um, and then others. Geneva was when the Bible had the, the chapters and verses. And then King James said, hey, I want a Bible um, named after me <laughs> that, that has, you know, um, the translations all nicely into one. And so the King James Version came out. Um, and then after some time, um, England actually produced another one called English Revised Version. And then Americans, of course, have to respond with an American Standard Version. And then after that happened, um, they also revised it into the New American Standard Version, which is 1971. And by the way, the New American Standard Version, according to many scholars, is one of the most... Um, kind of word-to-word -word accurate um, translations. But the thing about having word-to-word -word accuracy is that it's very awkward. Like, it's beautiful to say, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And to say, you know, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I shall fear no evil, for thou art with me. But then it's very awkward when you have, um, you know, through the valley, walk I will not. You know what I mean? Like, it just doesn't sound quite the same. And so they produced then in 1973... The new, where is it? The new um, international version, which is supposed to be a dynamic equivalent. So instead of word for word, it was phrase for phrase, so that it's a bit more kind of, you know, giving you the dynamic equivalent. Um, in 2002, someone said, hey, let's merge the readability of the NIV with the precise accuracy of the, of the NASB, and they came up with the English Standard Version, um, which was in 2002. And then finally also, Eugene Peterson um, said, hey, why don't we make a Bible that's like really easy to read, that's pretty much a paraphrase, and that expresses interesting, um, you know, an update language. And so he published in 2002 the Message Bible, for those of you who might have read that. There's so many more. A couple of geeks even translated the Bible into Klingon, um, the Star Trek language, apparently, or Star Wars. I don't even know. Don't, don't, I'm not one of those. But um, anyways, people have been inspired to translate the Bible into many kinds of languages. Um, and the important thing is not so much, you know, which version is the best. I mean, you can decide for yourself based on what I've shared. If you want to read the original Greek and Hebrew, by all means, go ahead. If you want to read the uh, NIV or ESV, um, just choose a version and, and read. And just to give you a few pointers, whenever you read the Bible, have you ever seen in the verse there will be italics once in a while? That doesn't mean that you should emphasize those words. It means that those words are actually not in the original and that they've been put in there to make it sound better. And so instead of um, the sentence saying, 
um, the Lord is my shepherd, I won't lack anything, or instead of, you know, and that, let's say the anything is in italics, instead of saying, I don't want, dot, 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 right? They just put the anything in there so that it, okay, now the sentence is complete. But it'll be in italics to let you know, look, that word is not in the original Greek or Hebrew, but it's been supplied, right? So you don't have to emphasize it when you read it um, in the verse. Also, some Bibles will put the words of Jesus in red. They just want to. Um, so that's what that means. Um, also, your, some Bibles will have little headings, chapter headings, as well as subheadings. Those are not in the original. The editors of the Bible decided, well, let, let's make it easier for you to kind of read by stories. So they put those in there, which is why some Bibles will have them and some will not. Um, also, you know, if you have Bibles that have little footnotes, um, it's, it's actually important to kind of read them because they give you information about the text that you're reading. Maybe they're letting you know, hey, look, some versions of the Bible have this phrase in it, but we didn't put it in. But this phrase is from this codex where this papyrus was found. And so now you know what all that is about. So how reliable is the Bible that we have today? The 66 books that we have. Um, oh, by the way, this is just the types of Bible translations. Um, if you want word for word, these are what you should read. If you want thought for thought, if you want paraphrase. Um, I, I'm happy to share this with anyone after if they want to. But yeah, how reliable is the Bible? How reliable are the 66 books that we have today? Um, when you look at the 66 books, there is a broad kind of uh, genre you've got law you've got gospels history you've got letters poetry um, you've got a lovely love song um, poetry very sexy in there as well in song of solomon so all these different genres like 66 books um, how reliable is this to us you know how can we trust that it's authentic how can we trust that it's actually true okay fine it's been faithfully copied but how do we even know if the original was truly um, inspired by god and, you know, we cannot prove everything, but archaeology um, doesn't prove the Bible, but archaeology can confirm um, a lot of the historicity of the Bible. And over 70 biblical characters, including kings, servants, scribes, and courtiers, have been confirmed over the last two centuries through archaeological research. And these are names that are only in the Bible and found in no other ancient text. And so scholars said, well, David never existed. There is no record of David in anything. And so they scoffed at the fact that David or Solomon existed. But um, archaeology later then would find things with David and Solomon, and they would be like, okay, fine, maybe they existed, right? And so that kind of has happened 70 times. Um, here's an example. In the book of John, uh, there's a story about Jesus healing a man by the pool of Bethesda. And the book of the, uh, John goes into detail and says there were five porticos um, to that. It gives a little description. Um, well, for many years, they said, this doesn't exist. Therefore, the Bible must be true because there was no pool and there are no five porticos. You know, maybe he meant this and he messed it up or they had different theories. Well, they actually found um, in 1993. So again, very recently, in 1993, they, oh, sorry, not 1993, that's the other one. Um, they found uh, 40 meters below ground that there actually is a pool with five porticos exactly where um, the writer had said that it would be. 
and then this is the one that was discovered in 1993. Um, skeptics doubted the existence of David, but um, there was uh, a stone fragment found that mentioned the house of Israel and the house of David. This is all they have, so who knows what else it said. But now they have to admit, okay, there was such a man as David that existed in that time period. There's so much more I could say about archaeology, um, and there's so many magazines and articles and scholarly mag- uh, things out there that you can read. But um, suffice to say that archaeology, yeah, lets us know that if the cultural, historical um, facts of the Bible are true, then could it be that the rest of the Bible are also true? Furthermore, there's a whole list, I'm not going to go through them, of secular writers um, that were contemporary writers to the Bible writers who confirmed the existence of Jesus, the fact that he was crucified, um, and the Christians who worshipped, how they worshipped. Of course, these secular writers mocked them, you know, like, I can't believe, you know, these people worship a guy that died, and et cetera, et cetera. Um, I can't believe they keep worshipping this guy, even though they're being killed. Um, many of them describe the persecutions of Nero um, and the other emperors of that time. Um, and so notice the, the years that they all lived and the years that they wrote are, they're all contemporaries of the New Testament writers. Also, the prophecies um, in the Bible have been written hundreds and thousands of years before they actually happened exactly as they predicted. For example, the birth of Jesus was predicted down to the exact year, month, day, um, as well as death of Jesus, year, month, day, time, um, and how he would die and what he would say and what would happen. All that was written hundreds of years before Jesus. And because we have the Dead Sea Scrolls, we know they were written hundreds of years before Jesus. And so um, there's so many things that can actually confirm the accuracy of the Bible. But for me, the most of all, the greatest proof that the Bible is true is the power of the Bible to transform lives. Hundreds and thousands and millions of lives throughout generations. That's why the Bible is a bestseller. That's why the Bible is um, translated into so many languages because it has that power to change um, to change criminals into conscientious citizens, to change apathetic atheists into impassioned apologists, to change skeptics into missionaries. And so I just want to, I guess, challenge you, if you've ever doubted, um, to do your research um, and if you've ever, if ne- you've never read the Bible for yourself, to start reading it, I recommend starting in the New Testament with the stories of Jesus and Mark, Matthew, etc., and John. And as you start, this is a promise I want to leave with you. It says, "Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light to my path." And it is my prayer that as you begin to discover the truth that is in here, the truth that was so important to God, that he made sure that it was passed down to us as accurately as possible, that as we take advantage of that truth and as we learn this truth for ourselves, that it will give us the the purpose and the passion and the direction in life that we are seeking. Thanks.